Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have the opportunity to interact with Dr. Tom Cowan, who is a physician out in the Pacific Northwest. And he's written a new book, Cancer and the New Biology of Water. And uh, he, he, some of you may know him from uh, being on the founding board of directors of the Weston Price Foundation, for which he now serves as the vice president. And uh, just really love Tom because he has so much common sense, which is obviously a rare commodity. It's not common at all. And he's just able to put things together. And we're both family physicians, so that's a special fondness for, for fellow family, family doctors. But he's helped a lot of people, and he continues to help them. And he's put a lot of that wisdom into his new book, so it's definitely a, a good read. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Tom. Thank you, Joe. It's always a pleasure and an honor to be with you. All right. So what was the motivation to write this book? Uh, you know, I, I think it, in some ways that it became clear the motivation after I wrote the book, which was, it was, I didn't intend this, but I wrote a series of three books. The first one on the heart, mm -hmm. second one on vaccines and autoimmunity, and then this one on cancer. And as I got into it, I realized it was all about water. Uh, the first book was basically two premises. One is that the heart doesn't pump the blood. In other words, the reason for the movement of the blood in our body is not because it's being pushed or there's propulsion by the heart. It's rather because of the dynamics of water. Uh, the second one was that not all heart attacks are caused by blocked arteries. Um, uh, then I got into the vaccine book and what childhood illness means. And that took me deeper into what cells are made out of. And then somehow it hit me around then that, that the whole problem of cancer is a cytoplasmic, i.e. water problem. And so it became like the culmination of this series of writing and thinking about you know, human biology, biology in general, and, you know, how wrong we have the, the whole thing, basically. So that's, that's why I wrote. All right. For those who are intrigued with what you said about your first two books, you can go on my site. We've done interviews for those, or obviously you can get the books. But if you want to sort of put your toe in the water, you can look at our previous interviews, and we could hopefully post a link to those on, the, on this page. Um, you know, one of the things I forgot to mention, I first met you, actually heard you in person at a Weston Price event, and I knew of your work, and I just sat in a lecture. I mean, it was like a two-hour lecture. I was just dumbfounded with all the information I learned, which is, was really stupendous. So, and you share this, that similar information in this book. But one of, what, what, what I wanted to, you to expand on was a re, the really intriguing statement that you made with respect to that cancer is a derivative of the water. I forget the specific phrase here, but some the derivative of the water in your in the cells. So, can you help us understand what your uh, belief is there? So, the the first thing I tried to point out in the book is that, um, you know, in 1971 we announced we meaning Nixon, uh, who announced the war on cancer, and the reason he did that is because we had discovered 
the reason why people have cancer, and that is because of oncogenes. So now it's interesting because I tried to figure out how much money has been spent on this, quote, war on cancer since 71. And it's hard to come up with a good figure. I, I would say it's trillions of dollars. If you count all the research, all the pharmaceuticals, all the salaries, all the buildings, all the everything that's gone into cancer research. My editors got talked me down into hundreds of billions. Yeah, but yeah. It's that's a, a safe number. Yeah, it's a safe number. So it's, and basically, you know, there was a paper published by a guy named Ulrich Abel in the 90s. The improvement in cancer statistics is 2.9%. And then the Australian government did a similar study, improvement in cancer statistics as a result of chemo, 2.3%. So that's an abysmal return on a $500 billion investment. I mean, if you asked a businessman, what do you think about getting 2% back, you know, improvement on $500 billion? Probably the most costly, you know, endeavor that humans have ever undertaken, except maybe war. Um, and so what's the problem? The problem I, I submitted in the book is cancer is, is not a problem of oncogenes. It isn't even a problem of the DNA. And even it isn't even a problem of the nucleus. So the question is, how do I know that? The answer, and this gets into the water question, uh, the reason I, I think I know that is there have been a number of studies over the year where they take two cells, both normal cells, and they can actually transplant the nucleus from a healthy cell into another healthy cell, and the progeny are normal, as you would expect. And then they take a cancer cell and they take the nucleus out where these oncogenes or the DNA that supposedly cause cancer and they put that into a healthy cytoplasm and it turns out that the progeny are normal. And then they take the, a normal nucleus <clears throat> and they put it into the cytoplasm of a cancer cell and it turns out the progeny are cancers. So that simple experiment turns out to tell you exactly where in the cell the problem of cancer lies, which is in the cytoplasm. Now a cell is, has two parts. Basically it's a lipid bound membrane that has a nucleus and it has a cytoplasm. And the cytoplasm is basically structured water or a gel. I can tell you how I know that if you want, but basically that's what it is. And so now we know that the cytoplasm is the site of cancer. And the events in the, in the, in the nucleus are a consequence of degeneration of the cytoplasm, not the other way around. Now, you know, it's so interesting about when these researchers did this and they identified clearly the site of the cancer problem is in the cytoplasm. They postulated that something in the cytoplasm, healthy cytoplasm, must be able to heal the mutations of the DNA in the nucleus, of which there's no evidence of that. But it just tells you how when human beings are so uh, 
persuaded, let's say, that there's, this is the right answer, no matter what evidence you give them, they continue to think that's correct. So even they can only say, well, there must be something in the cytoplasm that can heal the mutations or these oncogenes, of which isn't true. The problem is in the cytoplasm. And so that's structured water. And so then I, you know, I went from there and well, said, well let, let's stop there for a moment because okay. you know, I've interviewed Tom Seafried who a few times on this and I believe he's the researcher that brought to light the studies you referenced. He didn't perform yeah. them, but I think he exposed them. And it's his belief that it's not the cytoplasm, but it's the mitochondria that reside in the cytoplasm. So right. are you suggesting it's not the mitochondria and the, the structured water in the cytoplasm or both? Right. So the, the first thing is we, we wholeheartedly agree that those studies and, and the studies on the mitochondria, which, as you say, reside in the cytoplasm. So at least we know it's in the cytoplasm. Mm -hmm. um, now, whether and so certainly the mitochondrial function is part of that. It's one of the aspects. But but where I think I went deeper is I tried to demonstrate that it is the structured water that is the problem with cancer, and that mitochondrial defects. And I can get very specific about what I mean. Mm -hmm. They are a integral part of the breakdown of the structure of the water. Interesting. You know, there's, there's a, and I'm sure you're familiar with this too, and it's partially related to the biology of water, is the deuterium depleted water. Yes. Uh, and it's the mitochondria that actually produced that deuterium depleted water. So it would seem like there's a pretty strong connection between the two. And right. deuterium depleted water, at least non-deuterium depleted water, or DDW for short, appears to be a big factor for cancer too. And that's a, there's many strategy or protocols that actually use DDW now to treat cancer. Right. And, and that's one of the links I talked about in the book is when you look at what the function of the mitochondria is, which is essentially to produce ATP, mm -hmm. then, and you see what the role of ATP is, and how integral ATP is to the structuring of the water in the cytoplasm, then you begin to see the connections between mitochondrial dysfunction, which I agree is part of it, but, but what I think is that the mitochondrial dysfunction leads to deterioration of the cytoplasmic water, and mm -hmm. that leads to cancer. So is it a, what, is it chicken and egg? Which, which is the, what do you think is the first catalyzing event is the mitochondrial dysfunction or is it the this causes the structured imbalance in structured water or the reverse uh i think it's more complicated than that <laughs> of course <laughs> right uh but i can describe what i mean by that if you want yes um, please so so i one of the ways i started was you know because i'm you know, have a training in anthroposophy and Gertianistic way of looking at the world. I, I say, so what is, what do you see with cancer, at least on a cellular level? And there's two fundamental things. One is cancer cells have an altered spatial orientation. And that's the first thing. What do I mean by that? So if you feel a tissue 
let's just say a breast because that's easy to, to feel. It has a certain texture and it has a certain feel. So you feel normal breast, normal breast, and then you come and you feel a lump and you think, well, that's, that's where the cancer is. So why is it a lump? It's a lump because the density of the cells are too high. So the cells are clumped together. They've lost their normal spatial orientation. And that's one of the fundamental, basically, hallmarks of all cancer, except blood cancers. But let's forget about that for a minute. All solid tumors, all organs have a certain spatial orientation, and all cancers have, are too dense. So then one has to ask the question, where does this spatial orientation come from? And it comes because all cells have a charge around the cell, which when the charges come together, they repel each other and they keep a, their proper distance. And the proper distance is different for the liver cells, it's different for the eye cells, it's different for breast or prostate or whatever the organ is. But, but all tissues have a normal spatial orientation. And then, so where does this spatial orientation come from? comes from the charge. So where does the charge come from? The charge comes from the, orient, from the distribution of sodium and potassium across the cell membrane. And by the way, when people say, well, spatial orientation, what, how, what does that mean? How is that relevant? I would only point out, and I do this with patients, spatial orientation changes everything. You know, when I'm sitting in my office, I sit about six feet from a person. And that's the normal distance human humans like to talk to each other. I say, I can change everything by sitting on the other side of the room. Or, if you don't like that, I can put my face one inch from your face. And everything about the interaction, the words, the clothes I wear, your problem, my experience, everything is the same and it changes the entire experience, right? It's a different experience. You change the space, you change everything. With cancer cells, you change the space, they clump together, and that changes everything. <clears throat> why, do they, why do they not have the normal orientation? Because of this charge. Where does the charge come from? Standard medicine says, standard biology says, the distribution of sodium potassium is because of a sodium potassium pump in the membrane. So Gilbert Ling did a series of studies over 30 years proving that in order for the sodium potassium pump to create this charge distribution, it would have to use about 30 times the energy needed that the cell has available to it to do everything. The sodium potassium uh, pump, even though it's one of the cornerstones and foundations of modern biology and medicine is basically mostly a myth. And so the question is, how does this distribution of sodium potassium, one of the core functions of any biological entity, one of the core functions of mammalian cells, how does it come about? It comes about because in the cytoplasm is a mesh network of water which by some genius of nature is so constituted that it by itself traps the potassium and excludes sodium just because of its size. And so this, the, the proper healthy grid or mesh or structuring of the water 
in itself is the pump. No energy needed, just like the heart. The whole idea of a stupid pump pushing is ridiculous. It, it's done by the miracle of water. And so the charge distribution, the spatial orientation of a cell is because of the structuring of the water. So that's one. The second thing is the other hallmark of cancer cells is they all have an abnormal number of chromosomes. It's called aneuploidy as opposed to a diploid cell, which means, you know, humans have 46 chromosomes and mice have whatever they have and elephants have whatever they have. And if you get an abnormal number, that's an abnormal cell and we call it cancer. So how does that happen? It happens because of events in the cytoplasm which pull the, 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 the two chromosomes apart and make new copies called mitosis. Doesn't happen properly because the milieu in the cytoplasm, the water, so-called structured water, uh, is, is disturbed and therefore you get all these errors of mitosis and all the energy that is used for mitosis is, is deficient. That's because of the mitochondrial problem. And so you get errors in chromosome replication called aneuploidy. And when you get an aneuploid cell that has an abnormal spatial orientation, that's called a cancer cell. Okay, so thank you for explaining that. Uh, position because it, it, it's interesting and novel and not a lot of people are talking about that. Uh, I, I suspect it is a big factor, but the big portion of your book, now that we understand that this is an issue, goes into describing how you can create that structured water, which I think is really the more fascinating aspect. And surprisingly, some of those solutions, we came up with identical resources, which is Amazing because not many people know about these resources and I was not surprised to see that you found the same ones I did So uh, I think the base. So why don't you describe from your perspective? How you increase structured water because many people think that you should drink structured water and I don't I don't recall your position in the book, but I don't Believe that that's the key. I think that, not that there's anything wrong with drinking structured water, but the moment you drink it It's unstructured uh, at least from my understanding of physiology. So, but the key is to create it in your cells. So why don't you help us understand your recommendations for creating more structured water in the side of the cells, in the cytoplasm? Right. So to answer that, I would say the basic question is how do we make structured water? Mm -hmm. then, then you get the answer to how can you, what do you need to do in order to increase that? And I would say structured water is like jello. Uh, so you take water and you mix it with proteins, in this case gelatin proteins, and then nothing happens. So you add heat. What does the heat do? The heat unfolds the proteins and allows their hydrophilic surfaces to be exposed, which then grab onto the water, and then when you cool it, it cools into this gel-like state which is basically identical to the state that the cytoplasm is in. So that's the mo so in, in analogous in the cell, you take pure water. What do I mean by pure water? Well, H2O. 
except some water is D2O. That means it has deuterium in it, which is an isotope of hydrogen. And that will create a distorted gel because it doesn't have the same bond angles. It doesn't have the same physical characteristics. So one aspect of creating healthy, perfect gels is to have you know, healthy water, meaning H2O. And as you earlier pointed out, when you metabolize fats in the mitochondria, you create deuterium depleted water, which is hydrogen rich water. So that helps you structure it because that's real water. Then here comes the key, and this is the key between the mitochondria and the cytoplasm. So something has to play the role of heat with making jello. So we have these proteins, we have a protein exoskeleton or cytoskeleton. I think the proteins are basically actin because I've seen pictures from Zach Bush where he showed me actin proteins basically as the internal structure of the cytoplasmic gel. So let's say the proteins are actin. They need to be unfolded so they can interact with the water. And what does that? You can't heat it because obviously that wouldn't work in a, can't heat your foot or something. But so it turns out that ATP, which I, I, I would say Gilbert Lane proved, has nothing to do with energy, but what it has to do with is it binds to these cytoplasmic proteins, it causes them to unfold, and when they're unfolded, they mix with water, pure water, and then they create this cytoplasmic gel. So if you have an ATP deficiency, as happens when you have mitochondrial disease, it's like trying to make jello without heat. It's just you get clumps of, of dysfunctional proteins with water that can't be structured. And that's what you see with a cancer cell. So the other thing that Pollock has demonstrated is this process. So for instance, if you put hydrophilic proteins and water and you put it in a lead box, nothing happens. So there's a certain external energy that all, all systems, including biological cells, receive that helps them structure the water. So you put hydrophilic proteins in, with water in a lead box, nothing happens. Even, with the, even with the ATP? What? Even with the ATP production? Even with the ATP, or certainly less. So what do you do? You shine the sunlight on, and that makes the, the structuring more. You can see this because the water will flow through a hydrophilic tube, so you can measure the flow. Put it in a lead box, no flow. Shine the sunlight on it, more flow. Shine the sunlight on it, put the beaker on the earth, like earthing, more flow. Put the, take the, put the beaker with the hydrophilic tube with the water flowing in it, put it in the sun, put it on the earth, put your hands on it, or put your dog next to it, increases the flow. So you can see that if you want to have properly structured water, which then creates healthy cell division and healthy spatial orientation of the cells, you need sunlight, earth, human touch, like the biofields of other biological entities, especially those 
who wish you well, so to speak, like your dog. Um, or you can put your cell phone next to it. And what happens? It stops flowing. So that's proof enough that that's not very good for you if you want to have structured water. And since structured water is the basic unit of biology or the functional unit, in my opinion, it's what causes blood to flow, it's what causes cells to be toxic or not, it's the foundation of cancer, it's where the mitochondria, it's how the mitochondrial uh, production becomes function. You, then you have to think about EMF exposure as you, you know, brilliantly pointed out. And I didn't so much in the book, but, but you did. <laughs> well, I had reasons to. Uh, but I, I still want to confirm that you're not a, uh, an advocate of drinking structured water as a way of introducing it into your cells. It sounds like yes, you agree with that. Yeah, so that's what I thought too. And but there is some interesting things about this because as I pointed out in my book, so basically we're talking about pure water that has been energized, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And there are some amazing cases, like people go to this place in France called Lourdes. There's mm -hmm. been 7,000 documented cures uh, and something like 700 miracles by the Catholic Church rigorously investigated um, that people drink highly energized structured water and pray, I guess. And so that's the sort of energy, too. And it helps them. So I wouldn't say it's irrelevant. There are certain bond angles of water which seem to have certain therapeutic principles or the way I would put it is water captures the energy. That's like homeopathy. That's to me why homeopathy works. You imprint an energy of a certain plant or a certain mineral and you subtly change the water and that water brings that energetic imprint into the human being and creates a resonance. So you can do that with energy and water. And apparently if you know certain energies or whatever have blessed the water, that helps. Why, how that works, I don't really know. But that it works, incontrovertible. Okay. But it's unlikely to work by increasing uh, cytoplasmic uh, structured water unlikely we don't know yeah. so the but the other ways that you mentioned you mentioned sunlight and the derivative of that that's is much more convenient and probably more effective would be near and i stress near infrared light not far infrared light because many people confuse that and they think they're getting an infrared sauna and they don't distinguish between near and far and almost all the infrared saunas are far infrared Right. which does not structure the water because it only penetrates a few millimeters. But you were giving the analogy of heating the water with the proteins. And you said you couldn't do that with the body. But I was thinking, boy, you can sure do it with near infrared light. I mean, it penetrates like three to five centimeters. And you could certainly heat the, those cells directly. So why don't you come on? And here's the interesting thing. I, I know you're in a complete agreement with this because you mentioned the same source of near infrared sauna that I use, which is a uh, sauna space and right. came to the same conclusion that it, that is the most effective form of infrared therapy is near infrared through an, an EMF free uh, implementation. Yes. And the heat and the sweating, you know, for me, a fever therapy, which is also 
mm-hmm. you know, give me a medicine to produce a fever and I can cure any disease. That's the foundation of medicine. That's the reason for childhood diseases. That's why if you get rid of febrile diseases, you'll end up with a chronically sick population, 100%. What does it do? You know, I, I talk, so imagine you have this pure cytoplasm, pure structured water, and then you have a grape in it that's arsenic, and you want to get the grape out. So what do you do? You heat it up and let the water flow that dissolves the, the, the gel, the grape flows out, and then you reconstitute the gel. That's why fever therapy works. So when you do this, you know, sauna space, and you know more about the details than I do, but that penetrating heat and light, yes, it detoxifies the cell by, by creating sweating, which is a purification of the gel. And then it reconstitutes healthier gels because of the energy that you put in the system like sunlight. And you can see so many of these therapies, you know, the Gerson therapy was a way to reconstitute the sodium potassium balance. The whole diet approach, the whole enema approach was no sodium, high potassium, reproduce sodium potassium balance, reconstitute the spatial orientation of the cells. It's, it's exactly the same thing. You know, mistletoe therapy is fever therapy. It's, it, it, he, t- he said it's the, Steiner said it's the therapy for the etheric body. The etheric body is the water body. So it, they're all, people were doing this with, without knowing the, the, you know, the core dynamics of the cell. Why don't you expand on the mistletoe? Because I believe in the book you, you mentioned that's your favorite approach and almost universally recommended for your cancer patients. So, you know, mistletoe, so one of the reasons that I and other people choose medicines, it, it's, it's basically this so-called Gertianistic approach where we, we basically believe that the world is demonstrating to us the, the connection with the human being. So you, it's like, to a certain extent, metaphorical medicine. So you look at mistletoe and you see this tumor growing on a tree. You know, it's, you, if you've seen a tree with mistletoe, it's like got all these tumors that are very undifferentiated uh, tissue. The leaves are green, the roots are green, the stems are green, the flowers are green, even the berries are green. So it's this sort of green growing uh, mass that parasitizes the tree and you would think kills the tree, but interesting, trees with mistletoe do really well. So that's itself kind of a metaphor. The trouble with cancer is you have this same tumor growing that's growing and parasitizing you, sucking your nutrients, just like the mistletoe sucks the nutrients from the oak tree. But there's a central difference, which is the mistletoe has learned to cooperate with the oak tree, and so each do better together than they would do alone. Whereas in cancer, the tumor has parasitized you, and you do worse, and eventually, even interestingly, the cancer does worse. What we need is a situation where we bring back that cooperation. 
And you can, you can see that in so many different walks of life. This is not a survival of the fittest. <laughs> That's not, it's not how the world works. This is not every man for himself trying to see who's the last one standing. That's not how it works in nature. Nature is a cooperative venture, except if you don't see it like that. So mistletoe tells you to see it like that. Now, that's the metaphor. And then you get into, well, it has, you know, it stimulates a fever response. So it is a immunostimulating medicine. It stimulates white blood cells. It stimulates all these aspects of immune response. It, you know, stops cells from growing. So it works like a cytoplasmic, uh, like a chemo drug as well. So you can see down the, the mixture of the sort of basic science biochemistry with the metaphor, and then you can come to a picture of how this can be used. From Steiner, who originally said it, he said basically mistletoe simulates a bacterial infections. So apparently he knew that people were trying to cure cancer and treat cancer with fever therapy, with you know, bacterial toxins like Coley's toxins, and very successfully. So we don't want the, <clears throat> the infection, we want the simulation, the, the, the purification, the detoxification that happens with fever therapy. So mistletoe does that. He said it's also a therapy for the etheric body, which is the water body. And, you know, what do I mean by that? I mean, that's jargon, and I try not to use jargon. But, but the world is not, the biology is not chemistry. There's something else in a living being, which I would say is a water body. And it's, Something, you know, the way I would describe that is if you took all the chemicals that make up a carrot and there's a million sulfurs and 10 million borons or whatever, and you put them on a heap on the table, is that a carrot? And everybody I've ever asked says no. So what's missing? Well, the form is missing and the qualities and what makes it uniquely a carrot. That's not in the physical substance. And in order for that, whatever it is, that quality aspect to, to interact with the physical substance, you need water. And that's why Steiner called it the life body or the etheric body. It just means the water body. That's the part that's sick. Well, great. Well, thank you for the explanation. And you delved into the fever therapy. And that's another point that you discuss in the book that I think would be great if you could elaborate on because the history of the Cooley's toxin is quite interesting and, and actually initially, as I understand it, killed a few people until they realized it was the fever that was at it. And so I'm wondering if you could just briefly describe that and then also discuss how hyperthermia is being used and how that works in synergy or conjunction with mistletoe or these Cooley's toxins. I mean, this is a, I guess a, a therapy I know that some clinics use where they get your body temperature up to 100, 304 degrees for an hour or two. Right, I mean, Coley's toxin, my first interaction of this was, um, I mean, basically I, I, I ran across an article in the, in the um, Scientific American 1988 called Tumor Necrosis Factor, where the head of cancer research at Sloan Kettering 
was was saying, you know, uh, the the researchers of old they in this early in this century, twentieth century, realized that if you gave somebody a fever, oftentimes it would cure them of cancer. So we decided to look into what happens, and we found that your body makes something called tumor necrosis factor, and we give that to people, and we're seeing if that's a good cancer medicine. Um, the interesting thing about that is they give tumor necrosis factor, the people get a fever, and then they bring the fever down with the Tylenol or Motrin. <laughs> and if the therapy doesn't work, and they say, I don't know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, about a year later, for I don't know what reason, it's sort of karmic destiny with me, I get in the mail a book from, uh, John, from Coley's granddaughter with about a 2,000 cases that he treated who, uh, and the results, and about 60% of them, stage four, all different kinds of cancer, were cured by Coley's toxin, very well documented. It was the main adjunct of cancer therapy in the United States for a couple decades, and Wyatt Pharmaceuticals made their Coley's toxins. It was, you know, commonly used. And basically it came about because Coley, who is a sarcoma specialist, you know, at the most prestigious, that's a bone cancer. Uh, every time they treated somebody with sarcoma, they just died. And then he treated uh, John Rockefeller's, quote, friend, who I think was his girlfriend, and they wanted to do well, so they would probably get, you know, donations. And she had a sarcoma and she died. And he got really sort of angry at the whole thing and went and looked at the records of the hospital. And he found one guy who had been cured that all the entry was no surgery performed, discharged free of sarcoma. So he went and found the guy who was a doc worker named Stein. And he said, what happened? And he said, well, I got sick with erysipelas and had a four fever for a month. And then I was fine and they let me go home. And seven years later, he's fine. So Coley had the bright idea to next person with sarcoma, give him, uh, put him in a bed with somebody with erysipelas which is a strep infection. This is pre-antibiotic era, so there was like a 40% death rate from erysipelas. And interestingly, some of them got a high fever and died, and some of them got a high fever and got cured of their cancer. Uh, eventually, he figured out that he didn't need the erysipelas, he just needed the fever. So he isolated these proteins from the bacteria and give them at a certain dose, you can create whatever temp fever you want. And that became Coley's toxins. It was used up, up until the 60s. Many, many papers written about it, peer-reviewed journals. There's no doubt that it was an effective, more effective than any adjunctive uh, therapy for cancer we have today. That's a bold statement. That's, that's you know, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but so in a sense, though, it's a blueprint. So when you talk about hyperthermia, the, 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 the problem is it doesn't work as well as Coley's toxins. And I think the reason for that is it's, this is not turning on your innate cellular immune system. This is just heating up your cells. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that something good doesn't happen from heating up your cells, but but it's not the same as when it's internally generated. And Coley's was a way of 
internally generating the, the temperature. So is mistletoe. Mistletoe is not as dramatic as Coley's toxins, but um, there's all different kinds of ways. But I think it's the, the difference is if it happens from a innerly, internally directed activity, which is what happens when you, it's not the erysipelas that gives you the fever. It's your body's response to it. Of course, the problem is a lot of cancer patients will never get a fever no matter what you do, and so they can't use this. So is uh, Coley's toxin available now through a compounding pharmacist, or it's just not available anywhere? It's not available anywhere. That is a sad statement. (laughs) Very sad. I mean, yeah, there should be a way of stimulating fever i mean you can you know i did have occasion to use it a little bit years ago um and you could basically generate any temperature you want and it's a pretty rigorous therapy you know you get shakes and chills and not everybody wants to do that but if you do that you have a dramatic detoxification purification response so yes there should be that's part of the point of my book is I don't have an answer for cancer, right? I don't have this is the cure for cancer. It's a big problem, and there's many reasons why people get into this. But what's really annoying is the concerted effort to not study and eliminate any of these promising avenues, Coley's toxins, deuterium water, you know. I was just saying the other day, I'd love to see a study of people walking on the beach in the sun for two hours a day compared to a certain chemo. Even better sure. is, is walking in the water on, you know, in the ocean yeah. itself with, you know, like six to 12 inches of water because it's a little better than the sand, actually significantly better. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd be interested to see who does better. Yeah. I mean, and that has to do with the grounding and you could actually measure grounding. It's, a, it's, it's actually pretty simple to measure with the, you know, standard electrical instruments like the fluke meters and you can measure these potentials so you can see where, what, if you're grounded or not. And, and uh, I have some problems with conventional grounding because of the dirty electricity being generated in North America, not in most any other continent, but North America for sure. Uh, but you can bypass that if you're in a very large body of water, like some of the Great Lakes would do it, but also the oceans or the yeah. Gulf. Uh, so that, that's a workaround if you're, if you're in North America. It's certainly one I use all the time. But I'm wondering about another therapy, and I don't recall if you mentioned in your book, which is the hyperbaric oxygen, because it's, it's frequently used, and I'm a big fan of it. In fact, I've got my own hard shell hyperbaric chamber now and use it regularly. And part, part from what you were saying earlier, my guess is that perhaps one of the mechanisms that is benefiting people, I mean, it's providing more oxygen to the tissues at a much higher partial pressure than you can generate even to, just through diffusion because the partial pressure of oxygen is so high so that you can feed this oxygen to the mitochondria. They can generate more ATP and with that ATP production, they can create more structured water. Does that seem to align with, with your view on intracellular or cytoplasmic structured water? Right. That, the whole point, as you say, is if we have pure structured water, uh, that acts as the receptor for basically everything, you know, feelings, thoughts, chemicals, sodium, potassium, etc. 
So in order to make that, we start, we get oxygen through breathing. We get hydrogen, not deuterium. Um, so if we're eating high deuterium water, we're going to make, you know, wonky water because some of it's going to be D2O. So the more hydrogen we get, which comes from the metabolism of fats in the mitochondria, uh, the more ATP we generate, and there's a whole lot of reasons uh, why that deteriorates. Uh, and so hyperbaric oxygen, which I don't have a lot of, of experience with, and I didn't write about it in the book, but you know there is a case to be made that the oxygen pressure in the atmosphere has dramatically decreased in the last millennium or so. I don't exactly know the details. So if you, if you need more oxygen in the mitochondria to make pure water, right, if you push it in under higher pressure, that can only be a good thing. Well, and I don't want to give the illusion that it's a magic bullet by any way, shape, or means, because it's not. And it needs to be integrated into a whole healthy perspective, which... Uh, I'm a big fan of cyclic ketosis, which optimizes a high healthy fat diet uh, and regular right. periods of not eating so that you are optimized, you're, you're, mitochondri you're metabolically flexible, and you are able to generate this deuterium depleted water into the cell. Because if you just add oxygen in a person who's eating a lousy diet and, and has terrible sleeping habits and doesn't exercise, it's not going to work that well, if at all. Right. That, that, in a sense, Joe, that's my point too. None of this is a magic bullet. But if you, if you go at this, my, the, the point I was trying to make is <clears throat> the cytoplasm, a healthy cytoplasm, which is basically, as I keep saying, is a structured water gel. That's, that's the key focus. So if you, just, if you just look at all the factors that play into that, which is oxygen, which is energy that you're exposed to, EMFs, chemicals, toxins, uh, you know, on and on and on, all the things you just mentioned, all those contribute to, to the quality of the gels that you're going to produce. And that's what, that's what good health is. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to review this with us in this format, because I read the book and, and I don't know, it just it didn't impress me in the print form, but when I hear it from you with that explanation and the way you put it together, it makes perfect sense. And uh, I'm going to be integrating that into what I teach because I really like the concept and I firmly uh, believe it. And it's a pretty simple strategy. It's actually sort of an upgraded uh, explanation of, of Seyfried's metabolic theory of cancer because he doesn't integrate the structured water component. It's just most, mostly focuses on mitochondrial function. Right, yeah. Yeah. So any other tips you'd like to elaborate on? Uh, not so much tips, but, you know, one Perspectives, of, um, perspectives. I, perspectives, yes. I, I put two, two things, which I must admit I, were a little bit of a flyer for me on, uh, because I was stretching people. That, but I, I want to sort of finish with those. Uh, one, one of them was when you, when you get down into the, because I like, to I like to connect this with the history of humanity. So we have, what we're looking for is wholeness, right? Uh, we want wholeness. We want health. We want, you know, 
all spiritual, emotional, physical wholeness. So we have this symbol of the yin and the yang. Mm -hmm. so, so wholeness is the merger of two sides. And there's a light in the dark side, and each side has a little bit of the other in it. So when you look at the cell, we have two sides. We have a cytoplasm and a nucleus. The cytoplasm has a little bit of DNA in it, and the nucleus has a little bit of the water in it. So that's like the yin and yang symbol. And I tried to think of where's the metaphor in Western culture for this same concept. And some people may think this is stretch, but anyways, it's my book, so I wrote it. <laughs> uh, I said, uh, and not meaning to be religious, but it's the birth of Jesus. Uh, that's one of our core metaphors. And the birth of Jesus come about, comes about because of the, of the interaction of Mary and Joseph. And if you think about that from a biological standpoint, the sperm is just a condensed nucleus, right? It's a motorized nucleus. The water part, the cytoplasm is gone, so it can move faster. Uh, the, the sperm, is the, is, that's the Joseph side, that's the nucleus. Whereas the egg is an expanded cytoplasm, that's the Mary side. And as we're told in the, you know, in the story of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, this Mary side co is in, comes from the angels, right? There's no sperm involved. So we have the merger of the cytoplasm, that's the egg, and the nucleus, that's the sperm. I would submit that modern science, and in particular modern medicine, is obsessed with the sperm. They're obsessed with the nucleus and the DNA. You go to a doctor, why do I have such and such bad luck or genetics? That's what they said, bad luck or genetics. Everything is genetics. So that's the, that's the DNA, that's the nucleus. But when I was thinking about this and researching it and thinking to myself, how many people were healed because they prayed to Joseph? Frankly, I don't know anybody. And then how many people were healed because somehow they prayed to Mary and Mary did something to the water, like lords? There's thousands, maybe millions, the cytoplasm is the healing part of this dynamic. The nucleus is the materialistic part. And we are obsessed with that. And in my opinion, it's killing us. Because we can't understand either the cytoplasm or the water or the energy that's needed to create a healthy ecosystem, healthy world, healthy universe, healthy society, whatever. So to me, it's a bigger issue. And you can actually see this dynamics playing out in, in the story of cancer and the story of the cytoplasm in the nucleus. That's interesting. I also think, just a one, I also think it's the particle in the wave. Nucleus is the particle and the cytoplasm is the wave. 
And as the physicists tell us, it, matter exists in one of those two phases, depending on what you focus on. So if you see the world as a particle, you will, uh, you're, you're obsessed with the nucleus and you can't heal. You know, another interesting uh, aspect of that uh, metaphor you offered us is that the, the egg happens to be the most mitochondrially dense cell in the entire human body. I think it has yeah. about one or 10,000 mitochondria, which far exceeds any other cell. There you go. So it's the mitochondria are the key organelle in this, and they, their job is to create the conditions for the healthy structured water which is the vehicle for the, for the recept, receptor of these forces which create health in the human being or any biological system. And unfortunately, our medicine has no concept of health, only sickness. Well, conventional medicine. Conventional. <laughs> which is, we're both not large fans of. And, and I think you have... I, if I'm not mistaken, I think you have some emergency room training too. Or I do. Experience, yes. yeah. I thought you did. And so, which is to me one of the most valid uses of conventional medicine. So you've got the taste of both worlds. I do. So was there another uh, perspective you wanted to share or was that it? Uh, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Well, I thought, uh, you, thought you said you had twos. I'm sorry. It just it wasn't. Oh, yeah. I, I, I did. The other one was... I, I finished the book with the uh, story of Sleeping Beauty, which I think is the same story. And, you know, it's what we tell children to teach them how the world works, which is, you know, the um, Sleeping Beauty is the princess. So she's obviously the maternal one. And she was um, bewitched by the evil witch. The evil witch in fairy tales always stands for the materialistic side. So when you're bewitched by materialism, and that's also the nucleus, you fall into chaos and disrepair, as happened in the story. And something has to come along to wake you up, wake us up, not to a new way of seeing, as they say in this story, but to our true nature. And that's where we're at now. We're living out the story of Sleeping Beauty. We're bewitched by materialism, by baubles, and we can't see our true nature. And that's become a real problem. Okay, well, you can't end on that. You have to at least give us uh, some summary recommendation on how to <laughs> be, <laughs> get out of this uh, the matrix. From your perspective. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all these things. So it's, it's an interesting combination of all these techniques that we're talking about. You know, eating the way you're talking about, cyclical ketosis, sunlight, walking in the ocean, infrared saunas. There's all that. That's one hugely important level. Fever therapy, bringing back therapies like polystoxins that work. There's another side, which is to change our minds. And I don't think that has been given enough uh, 
it's been given a short shift or shift as trips. Yes. Trips. Um, somehow we have to change our mind and not begin to see the world, I would say differently, but see the world as it is. Mm-hmm. The world is, you know, I often tell people and patients, you know, if you see the world from a materialistic point of view and you realize that the matter that we're talking about is made of atoms, which are themselves 99% space, right? Just empty. Uh, so how does that work? It's an illusion. So once we see there is a, we're, you know, essentially crystallized energy, then you start to wake up. And the most hopeful thing I think I can tell people is once you begin to open your mind that there's more out there than I thought or that I was taught in school or that my doctors tell me, somehow the world seems to feed you information or give you clues as to where to go with this next. You you don't need me to tell you what to do or where to go next. Somehow it it, it just happens. I think, I don't know if you would agree, but in my life, once you open yourself to this possibility, to me, it's like the spiritual world comes in to offer their hand. Next thing you know, you look into this. Next thing you know, you meet this person. Next thing you know, you listen to Mercola. And (laughs) things that you didn't know before. And you just keep opening your mind. And if we keep doing that, we can build a different world. Yeah, well, that is sage advice, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and that's been my experience also, especially even more so now I'm entering a transition in my own life where I'm focusing on this uh, to a large degree and seeing just miracles occur pretty much every day in my life, which is crazy. Yeah. So uh, I endorse that on steroids. Yes. You don't have to do anything. You just have to not Stop not doing things. <laughs> believing that there's nothing there. Yeah, yeah. It it's, sounds like an odd strategy, but try it. <laughs> try it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like this guy's nuts. But try it, and immediately it starts working. It's amazing. It's just, yeah. yeah. All right. With that amazing sage advice and wisdom, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us and taking the time to consolidate your thoughts in the book, Cancer and the New Biology of Water, which should be available when we have this article posted. So definitely recommend it. And you know, all the resources in there, it's a great read. I love the way you write. It's uh, it'll get a, have a lot of books to read and it's just a joy to read yours because it's inter- not necessarily entertaining, but it's a nice story. You tell a really good story and that makes it easier to read. Great. Yeah, I, I, I live in fear of being boring. <laughs> well, I don't care so much if I'm right sometimes. I just don't want to be boring. Yeah, well, I think you succeed in this book. So congratulations and, uh, and uh, hope the, work, the book does well. And I think it's going to help a lot of people and put a proper perspective on things. And hopefully, who knows, it might catalyze some budding entrepreneur out there to get Coley's toxins out and available again and save a few million lives. Yeah, I hope, that, I, I do. I hope it catalyzes some, some institution, some person, some somebody 
to say, we got to do this differently because this isn't working. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Finding what works. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, Joe. Thanks for having me again. All the best.